0: Uh, I'm going to begin with um, the epigraph of this book, which is from a book written in 1934 in French and translated into English, and it reads like this. As looking at a portrait suggests the impression of the subject's destiny to the observer, so the map of France tells our own fortune. The body of the country has in its center a citadel, a forbidding mass of age-old mountains, flanked by the tablelands of Provence, Limousin, and Burgundy, and all around vast slopes, for the most part difficult of access to anyone attacking them from the outside, and split by the gorges of the Seine, the Rhone, and the Garonne, barred by the walls of the Jura Alps and the Pyrenees, or else plunging in the distance into the English Channel, the Atlantic, or the Mediterranean. But... In the Northeast, there is a terrible breach between the essential basins of the Seine and the Loire and German territory. The Rhine, which nature meant for the Gauls to have as their boundary and their protection, has hardly touched France before it leaves her and lays her open to attack. That was written in 1934 by Captain Charles de Gaulle and basically states exactly where the German attack would take place six years later. Okay? The book begins this way. In the dying light of an autumn day in 1937, a certain Herr Edvard Yule, a secret agent, descended from a first-class railway carriage in the city of Warsaw. Above the city, the sky was at war. The last of the sun struck blood-red embers off massed black cloud, while the clear horizon to the west was the color of blue ice. Herr Yule suppressed a shiver, the sharp air of the evening, he told himself. But this was Poland, the border of the Russian steppe, and what had reached him was well beyond the chill of an October twilight. A taxi raided on Jeruzalemski Street in front of the station, the driver, an old man with a seamed face, sat patiently, knotted hands at rest on the steering wheel. Hotel Europeski, Yule told the driver. He wanted to add, and be quick about it, but the words would have been in German, and it was not so good to speak German in this city. Germany had absorbed the western part of Poland in 1795. Russia ruled the east, Austria-Hungary, the southwest corner, for 123 years, a period the Poles called the Partition, a time of national conspiracy and defeated insurrection, leaving ample bad blood on all sides. With the rebirth of Poland in 1918, the new borders left a million Germans in Poland and two million Poles in Germany, which guaranteed that the bad blood would stay bad. So, for a German visiting Warsaw, a current of silent hostility, closed faces, small slights, we don't want you here. Nonetheless, Edvard Yule had looked forward to this trip for weeks. In his late 40s, he combed what remained of his hair and strands across his scalp and cultivated a heavy, dark mustache meant to deflect attention from a prominent bulbous nose, the bulb divided at the tip. A feature one saw in Poland often enough, so an ordinary-looking man who led a rather ordinary life, a more than decent life, in the small city of Breslau. A wife and three children, a good job, as a senior engineer at an ironworks and foundry, a subcontractor to the giant crime metal firm in Dusseldorf, a few friends, memberships in a church, and a singing society. Oh, maybe the political situation, that wretched Hitler and his wretched Nazis strutting about, could have been better, but one abided, lived quietly, kept one's opinions to oneself, it wasn't so difficult, and the paycheck came every week. What more could a man want? Instinctively, his hand made sure of the leather satchel on the seat by his side. A tiny stab of regret touched his heart. Foolish, Edvard, truly it is. For the satchel, a gift from his first contact at the French embassy in Warsaw, had a false bottom, beneath which lay a sheaf of engineering diagrams. Well, he thought, one did what one had to do, so life went. No, one did what one had to do in order to do what one wanted to do. So life really went. He wasn't supposed to be in Warsaw. He was supposed by his family and his employer to be in Gleiwitz, just on the German side of the frontier, dividing German lower Silesia from Polish upper Silesia, where his firm employed a large metal shop for the work that exceeded their capacity in Breslau. With the Reich rearming, they could not keep up with the orders that flowed from the Wehrmacht. The Gleiwitz works functioned well enough, but that wasn't what Jule told his bosses bunch of lazy idiots down there, he said with a grim shake of the head, and found it necessary to take the train down to Glywitz once a month to straighten things out. And he did go to Glywitz, that pest from Breslau back again, but he didn't stay there. When he was done bothering the local management, he took the train up to Warsaw, where, in a manner of speaking, one very particular thing got straightened out. For Yule, a blissful night of lovemaking, making followed by a brief meeting at dawn, a secret meeting, then back to Breslau, back to Frau Yule, and his more than decent life. Refreshed, reborn. Too much, that word? No, just right. Yule glanced at his watch. Drive faster, you peasant. This is an automobile, not a plow. The taxi crawled along Novi Swiat, the Grand Avenue of Warsaw, deserted at this hour. The Poles went home for dinner at four. As the taxi passed a church, the driver slowed for a moment, then lifted his cap. It was not especially reverent, Yule thought, simply something the man did every time he passed a church. At last, the imposing Hotel Uropeski, with its giant of a doorman in visored cap and uniform, worthy of a Napoleonic marshal. Yule handed the driver his fare. He kept a reserve of Polish sloty in his desk at the office, and added a small proper gratuity, then said, Donkashen. It didn't matter now. It was where he wanted to be. In the room, he hung up his suit, shirt, and tie, laid out fresh socks and underwear on the bed, and went into the bathroom to have a thorough wash. He had just enough time. The Countess Shalenska would arrive in 30 minutes. Or, rather, that was the time set for the rendezvous. She would, of course, be late, would make him wait for her, let him think, let him anticipate, let him stink. And was she a countess, a real Polish countess? Probably not, he thought, but so she called herself, and she was, to him, like a countess, imperious, haughty, and demanding. Oh, how this provoked him, as the evening lengthened and they drank champagne, as her mood slid subtly from courteous disdain to sly submission, then on to breathless urgency. It was the same always, their private melodrama, with an ending that never changed, Yule the stallion, despite the image in the mirrored armoire, a middle-aged gentleman with thin legs and puff belly and pale chest home to a few wisps of hair, demonstrably excited as he knelt on the hotel carpet, while the countess, looking down at him over her shoulder, eyebrows raised in mock surprise, deigned to let him roll her silk underpants down her great, saucy, fat bottom. Noblesse oblige. You may have your little pleasure, she seemed to say, if you are so inspired by what the noble Shalenska bloodline has wrought. Yule would embrace her middle and honor the noble heritage with tender kisses. In time, very effective such honor that she would raise him up, eager for what came next. He'd met her a year and a half earlier, in Breslau, at a wine stube where the office employees of the foundry would stop for a little something after work. The wine-stube had a small terrace in back, three tables and a vine, and there she sat, alone at one of the tables on the deserted terrace, morose and preoccupied. He'd sat at the next table, found her attractive, not young, not old, on the buxom side, with brassy hair pinned up high and an appealing face, and said good evening. And why so glum on such a pleasant night?' she'd come down from warsaw she explained to see her sister a family crisis a catastrophe the family had owned for several generations a small but profitable lumber mill in the forest along the eastern border but they had suffered financial reverses and then the storage sheds had been burned down by a ukrainian nationalist gang and they would had to borrow money from a jewish speculator but the problems wouldn't stop they could not repay the loans And now, that dreadful man had gone to court and taken the mill. Just like them, wasn't it? After a few minutes, Yule moved to her table. Well, that was life for you, he'd said. Fate turned evil, often for those who least deserved it. But don't feel so bad. Luck had gone wrong, but it could go right. It always did, given time. Ah, but he was sympathique, she'd said. An aristocratic reflex to use the French word in the midst of her fluent German. They went on for a while, back and forth. Perhaps someday, she'd said, if he should find himself in Warsaw, he might telephone. There was the loveliest cafe near her apartment. Perhaps he would, yes. Business took him to Warsaw now and again. He guessed he might be there soon. Now, would she permit him to order another glass of wine? Later, she took his hand beneath the table, and he was, by the time they parted, on fire. Ten days later, from a public telephone at the Breslau railway station, he'd called her. He planned to be in Warsaw next week at the Europeski. Would she care to join him for dinner? Why, yes. Yes, she would. Her tone of voice on the other end of the line told him all he needed to know, and by the following Wednesday, those idiots and Blywitz had done it again, he was on his way to Warsaw. At dinner, champagne and langoustine. He suggested that they go on to a nightclub after dessert. First, he wanted to visit the room to change his tie, And so, after the cream cake, up they went. For two subsequent monthly visits, all was paradise. But, it turned out, she was the unluckiest of countesses. In his room at the hotel, brassy hair tumbled on the pillow, she told him of her latest misfortune. Now it was her landlord, a hulking beast who at her, made chuk chuck noises with his mouth when she climbed the stairs, who told her that she had to leave his latest girlfriend to be installed in her place, unless her misty eyes told him the rest. Never. Where you had just been, this swine would not go. He stroked her shoulder, damp from recent exertions, and said, Now, now, my dearest, calm yourself. She would just have to find another apartment. Well, in fact, she'd already done that. Found one even nicer than the one she had now, and very private owned by a man in Krakow, so nobody would be watching her if, for example, her sweet Edvard wanted to come for a visit. But the rent was 200 zloty more than she paid now, and she didn't have it. A hundred reichsmark, he thought. Perhaps I can help, he said. And he could, but not for long. Two months, maybe three. Beyond that, there really weren't any corners he could cut. He tried to save a little, but almost all of his salary went to support his family. Still, he couldn't get the hulking beast out of his mind. Chuck, chuck. The blow fell a month later. The man in Krakow had to raise the rent. What would she do? What was she to do? She would have to stay with relatives or be out in the street. Now Yule had no answers. But the countess did. She had a cousin who was seeing a Frenchman, an army officer who worked at the French embassy, a cheerful, generous fellow who, she said, sometimes hired industrial experts. Was her sweet Edvard not an engineer? Perhaps he ought to meet this man and see what he had to offer. Otherwise, the only hope for the poor countess was to go and stay with her aunt. And where was the aunt? Chicago.